You're listening to The 66, a podcast where we survey the books of the Bible one book at a time. I'm Drew Kaiser, and with me is Andrew Kingsley, and we are embroiled in embroiled. a study of... I wanted to try it out. It's kind of a neat word. Okay. A study of the book of Ezekiel on Election Day 2016. Ezekiel? No, embroiled. Embroiled. Is that a cooking term? You know, it means you're fervently, zealously working hard, bubbling over with enthusiasm. So could you use that word in a cooking context, though? I'm sure if the contest is uh, very competitive and uh, difficult, challenging. Contest? I said cooking context, not contest. Oh, context. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to have to push stop. I tell you, we need some context. This podcast. Yes, it does. Uh, what are we doing today? Andrew, can't remember what we were talking about. Ezekiel. Yeah. So, Ezekiel is difficult. You know, it's hard. Yeah. It's prophecy. Mm-hmm. I let me. Can I share a little anecdote with you? You go right ahead. So yesterday, I was at an undisclosed Uh-oh. location. And I think I've already told you this off mic, so I'm just throwing this in for our listener or okay. listeners. And this, uh, I had my Bible with me because I was doing a funeral. And this mm-hmm. old man, did I tell you this? I don't he know. Goes, I don't think so. He said, what you got there? I said, it's the Bible. Does that book have the book of Revelations in it? I said, yeah, last time I checked. Does it have the revelation of the Apostle John? I said, yep. He goes, no, I mean, does it say the Apostle John? I don't want any of this St. John business. Oh, my goodness. I was goodness. like... Um, you know, I've never looked to see, and I opened it up, and it said the revelation to John. I said, well, it just says John. He goes, that ain't what I'm looking for. I need one that says the revelation of the apostle John. He ain't no saint no more. He's an apostle. I said, okay. (laughs) So here's the moral of the story. With these prophecies, like Revelation, Daniel, Ezekiel, it's easy Mm -hmm. to miss the forest for the trees and you know yeah. concentrate on the word apostle instead of like what it what really the, means yeah. and I think I said this last episode with Ezekiel we know what Ezekiel means we just may not understand why he had to lay on one side for so long Yeah, you know and this is part two of uh, a two part series on the symbols mm-hmm. of Ezekiel and last episode, you know, there were some difficulties. There are going to be some in this episode. Let's just not get so focused on the word apostle and forget that we're reading a revelation from God, if I might try to somehow tie my anecdote into the, what we're doing today. Yeah. But uh, I'm going to let you take it from there. You've got a reading today. And uh, we'll do it just like last time, right? We'll uh, We'll have the reading, and we'll just keep it... It's pretty superficial, right. saving us some stuff to do during the think segment mm-hmm. that comes next. Yeah, so we'll just try to give you a basic idea. We're going to go through four symbols today. I think we did four or five in the last one. So we're going to do four again, and this time we might even just give you uh, the short notes, kind of a paraphrase of what the symbol was, and then we can... Uh, read more and explore it more in the next section. The first one's going to appear in chapter 12 where Judah's captivity 
is going to be symbolized by Ezekiel packing up some baggage. So we're going to call this symbol the baggage. Very creative. (laughs) Uh, So Ezekiel has to pack up not just any kind of baggage, but an exile's baggage. So he's packing some suitcases, I guess, but not very big ones. Yeah, (laughs) Samsonite. I was way off. Um, Packing an exile's baggage, and he's preparing himself to send himself out into exile. And at the evening, after packing up, he's supposed to dig a hole through the city wall. Now, remember, he's not in Jerusalem. He is in, was it Tel Aviv, we believe, uh, outside of the Kibar Canal, somewhere outside of Babylon. He's doing this to symbolize to the people what's going to happen to their fellow Jews in Jerusalem. He digs a hole through the wall, and he leaves the city with the bags on his shoulder while covering his face. You can read that in verses 1 through 6. That's what he is asked to do, and that is exactly what he does. So that's symbol number one. I picture um, I picture a knapsack kind of thing. Yeah. It yeah had I'm to not be making something. a joke, just all serious, because it seems more portable even than a suitcase, more temporary, almost like he's going to have to go camping. Right. You know, that's just kind of the image I have in my mind, even though the word baggage is used. It's not a lot of baggage because this is something that he would have had to have carried with him. And keep in mind, these people had already done this. So the people yeah. here had already had to pack an exile's baggage and leave Jerusalem and hike all the way here, which was a about a 900-mile journey. It's about a 900-mile journey. Um, and let's see, I've got here somewhere about how long it took them. Uh Basically, they had to hike about seven and a half miles every day. So this is 10,000 people moving seven and a half miles every day. is a pretty good amount of ground to cover. So you're not going to carry a whole lot of stuff. So like you said, you're going to carry basically like a backpack, Mm -hmm. something that's not going to weigh you down too far uh, or too heavily. So the first one is the baggage. The second one we're going to see in chapter 21, starting in verse 18, where the context here is the Lord is talking about uh, that the sword has been drawn, or the sword of the Lord has been unsheathed. It's the exact term that is used. And in the last episode, we mentioned that was something familiar from Leviticus. But when we get to verse 18, God is going to tell Ezekiel that you need to give my sword directions, literally give it directions by building a sign. So we're going to call this one the signpost again we get really creative spend a lot of time thinking about this yeah uh so god instructs ezekiel to go outside the city and to build a sign uh, that kind of looks like a y uh, with one prong leading over to jerusalem and the other one leading to reba ammon i probably should have said that rabah amon i don't know Uh, but one goes to jerusalem one goes to this other city. Uh, and then God says that when Nebuchadnezzar gets there, when he sees this sign, when he is coming through to go destroy Jerusalem and also this other city, um, that he is going to practice divination to figure out how he's going to go, which way he's going to take. He says he's going to shake the arrows. He's going to consult the teraphim, 
Your translation might say household idols. This is all in verses 21 to 23. Uh, and then he says he'll also look at the liver. We'll talk a little bit more about what those were in the Sounds next like section. Witchcraft. That's exactly what it was. Uh, basically, it was like the Babylonian version of an eight ball, kind of, except way more thorough. You know, they'd get there and they would do these things and whichever way it told them to go is the way they would go. God says here, they're going to do that and it's going to send them to Jerusalem. They're going to go destroy Jerusalem. Now, Reba, I remember the only other place I can remember reading about Reba was in this story about King David. I think it's in 2 Samuel 12. And I only remember that because it's in close approximation to the story of David and Bathsheba and the visit David got from Nathan the prophet. But uh, in that chapter, he goes down to Reba after his uh, army general had conquered it, and he makes the people do some horrible things. I mean, he puts them, he makes slaves out of them, and there is some evidence that possibly many of them died in a furnace, mm-hmm. um, were burned to death. Uh, but it was an Ammonite stronghold like you're talking about here I just do you think there's any significance to Reba or was that just you know a stand-in for all the pagan nations that Babylon was he was fighting the Jews but he was also fighting uh, these pagan nations and that's just one they came up came up with or it, well it's Nebuchadnezzar kind of obscure right he does go to that city he winds up going to both. And basically, when okay. he gets there at that signpost, he's trying to decide where he's going to go first, who they're going to destroy first. And I'm looking here um, for the note on that. Uh, but that city, they had also rebelled against Babylon. So, and that was the the center yeah, for that, them as well. Yeah, that was a well. historical point. Right. So that they were similar, maybe in their reaction to. Babylon to the Jews. Maybe right. That, maybe that's all that. And is. so Nebuchadnezzar is going to go wipe out both cities because they've both rebelled against him. Okay. He's trying to yeah. figure out which one to go to first. And he God chooses. says he's going to wind up choosing Jerusalem from the little divination things he's going to try out. Mm-hmm. It's going to lead him to Jerusalem, so Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. So which that basically means he got to the he got to the crossroads. He flipped the coin, and it went. Unfortunately for the Jews, it went to Jerusalem. Right. Mm -hmm. And God does say, well, this might be getting too much in the next section, but he does say here, when this happens, you're going to think that uh, in verse 23 it says, it will seem like a false divination. So, you know, this isn't something they should have actually done. Or, But God says, nope, this is real. This is for me. I'm sending them to Jerusalem to wipe out the city. Yeah. So Ah, that's what this sign is for. That gives the, us more to talk about. I think I get it yeah. now, the way you put it. Yeah, it's a literal sign. Mm-hmm. So, so, so far we've done two. We did the baggage, and now we've done the signpost. And now this next one is probably the most significant or shocking out of all of them in the book of Ezekiel. This is in chapter 24. Uh, he tells a short little parable about... Uh, setting on a pot and boiling it. Uh, and he's referring to the contents of the pot as Jerusalem. But when that's over, he gets down to verse 15. And basically, here's what he tells Ezekiel. He says that Ezekiel's wife will die later that night. 
And in spite of the tragedy, Ezekiel is required to abstain from all public displays of grief. And it looks like private as well. He's told that he can't cry. He's told that he can't mourn. Well, we'll just read it. It says this. Son of man, this is verse 16. Behold, I'm about to take the delight of your eyes away from you at a stroke. Yet you shall not mourn or weep, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh, but not aloud. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind your turban and put your shoes on your feet. Do not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men. And then later that night, his wife dies, and that's exactly what he does. We can talk a lot more about that in the next section. Yeah, I know our listeners have questions, and I have questions beyond. There's some things in here I don't understand beyond the big thing about his not being able to grieve mm-hmm. the loss of his wife. But we'll save it. Yeah, cliffhanger. Yeah. So there's three. And then this final one uh, is a little obscure. It's in chapter 37, uh, and it starts in verse 15. This one is about uh, a stick, or really two sticks, that he turns into one stick. This comes right after the famous account of the Valley of Dry Bones uh, in the first part of chapter 37. So we're talking about restoration. Mm-hmm. That's the theme that's in mind here. And then when we get to verse 15, here's the task that he's given. Son of man, take a stick and write on it, for Judah and the people of Israel associated with him. Then take another stick and write on it Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him. And join them one to another into one stick so that they may become one in your hand. And that's it. That's all he has to do. So he takes two sticks. On one of them he writes Judah. On the other one he writes Joseph or Ephraim. um, And then he binds them together I think the meaning is there pretty obvious. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's talking about... He spells it out in verse 22. I will make yeah. them one nation on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all, and they shall no longer, they shall be no longer two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. Right. And then when we get down to verse 24, we even have a messianic prophecy here. My servant David will be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd... They will walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. Wow. Uh, and then down in verse 27, my dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be with their God, and they will be my people. Yeah, that's a that's that's a messianic prophecy that's neglected far too much. Yeah. That's one of the plainest ones I've ever mm-hmm. seen. Well, it even spells Rarely it out. We ever talk about it further in verse 25, uh, where it says, "They and their children and their children's children." shall dwell there forever, and David, my servant, will be their prince forever. Mm -hmm. So it's mentioned twice Wow! right there in those verses. So there's your four symbols. Uh, You have the baggage. You have the road sign. Mm -hmm. You have the delight of Ezekiel's eyes, which is his wife. And now here you have the stick. So there are four symbols, and there's a lot to talk about from those four. So we'll take a quick break, and then we'll come back, and we'll think about them. Okay, so we're ready to think about these four symbols that we've looked at. And Drew, I guess what we can do is we'll just move through them and talk about what they mean, 
and as we pick out interesting things, we'll see if we've got some notes on them. Yeah, sounds good to me. And try to discuss them further. Okay, so the first one is the symbol of the baggage. And here's what it means in verse 9. Son of man, has not the house of Israel, the rebellious house, said to you, What are you doing? Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, This oracle concerns the prince in Jerusalem and all of the house of Israel who are in it. Say, I am a sign for you, as I have done, so it shall be done to them. They shall go into exile, into captivity. The prince who is among them will lift his baggage upon his shoulder at dusk and go out. They'll dig through the wall to bring him out through it. He'll cover his face that he may not see the land with his eyes. I will bring him to Babylon. We're skipping down to verse 13. I'll bring him down to Babylon, the land of the Chaldeans, yet he will not see it, and he will die there. So this is a sign meant to prophesy what's going to happen to the current king of Judah, who is Mataniah or Zedekiah. Same name, okay. Mataniah. And and I think it would help our listeners to realize that at this point in the history, while Ezekiel is captive, there are still a few Jews left back home, including a puppet king, mm-hmm. uh, a king that Nebuchadnezzar put there. Because uh, I got a little confused. I was looking at it thinking... Wait a minute. Uh, this has already happened, but that's not the case, right? There's right. Yeah. Yeah. This isn't going to happen for I think we're somewhere around the ballpark of seven years away or so. Yeah, it's close because are. the whole thing. There were three phases of conquest where the Babylonians uh, took over Jerusalem, and that all happened between 605 and 586. Mm-hmm. And this was sometime after 597, right? Right. So he only got yeah. 11 years total that all of this can happen. It's right in there. Mm-hmm. So the prophecy is that Zedekiah, who's that puppet king you're talking about, who's been set up, when the city is besieged, he's going to try to sneak out through the wall uh, kind of in a hurry, but he's going to be caught, taken to Babylon, but he says he will not see the land of Babylon. Yeah. And he will die there. 2 Kings 25 tells what happens when Nebuchadnezzar does come. Um, Verse 1 of chapter 25. We'll read all the way to verse 7. In the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all of his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. They built siege works all around it. That's per that first symbol that we talked about with the brick. Um, the city was besieged until the 11th year of Zedekiah. On the ninth day, the famine was so, so severe in the city there was no food for the people. A breach was made in the city, and all of the men of war fled by night by way of the gate between the two walls by the king's garden, and the Chaldeans were around the city. Yeah, a breach so, means a hole dug into the wall. Yeah. Just like Ezekiel did. Yeah. So Zedekiah is going to sneak out through a breach in the wall at nighttime. And they're going to run away. Uh, The Babylonians pursue them. They capture him. Here's verse 6 of chapter 25, 2 Kings. Then they captured the king and brought him to Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him there. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and brought him in chains and took him to Babylon. So every part of that little symbol comes to fruition a few years later when Zedekiah does try to sneak out and he is captured and 
he doesn't see the land of Babylon because he doesn't have eyes. Yeah. They get plucked out. I mean, the the prophecy had the detail in it, but it was in, it was so uh, subtle. You know, he shall be there, but he won't see it. It just really, I don't know. It's it's more startling to see those the history lined up with the prophecy than it would have been if if Ezekiel had been literal and said, and they will put out his eyes mm-hmm. and slaughter his children. Yeah. To say that he'll come to Babylon without seeing it. I don't know. It's more unsettling to me. Yeah, you yeah. Know? It's a little more cryptic, and leaves a little more for you to be worried about, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's the first one. There's a few other things to talk about, but I'm going to save it for the application. But if you're looking for the main point of what's going on there, that's a prophecy meant to depict what's going to happen. First of all, to the prince, which is Zedekiah, um, and then also to the people as well. Uh, the following verses after that verses 17 through 20 talk about what's going to happen to the city of Jerusalem this is really familiar stuff so I don't really feel like it requires much of our time the people are going to eat their bread in anxiety is a phrase that's there that's familiar from the last episode so we'll just continue on to the signpost Uh, this one is the one if you remember Ezekiel builds the sign one way points to Jerusalem the other way leads to Reba Uh, God says that Nebuchadnezzar is going to practice his divination at this sign to try to figure out where he's going to go. And this is in chapter 21 of Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel. Now, <laughs> now I Ezekiel. think that is kind of like just a symbol of paganism in general. Yep. Just emphasizing the point that the Israelites will indeed be destroyed by, a, as Habakkuk put it, a nation less righteous than they. Mm-hmm. Uh, a nation that doesn't believe in God. I know Nebuchadnezzar, according to Daniel, had dealings with God, but he wasn't a believer in the sense of putting God first and being a, a follower of God. Yeah. And all of these strange sorcery, uh, all this uh, witchcraft, is there to emphasize the fact that the Lord knows what he's doing. He knows this guy is a pagan. Mm-hmm. He knows that he is wicked and evil, and yes, it's this is the one who's going to destroy them. Yeah. And here's what he means by this little phrase that we mentioned in the first section. Um, when the king stands at the parting of the way at the head of two ways to use divination, he shakes the arrows, he consults the teraphim, he looks at the liver. Those are three uh, common methods of, quote, divination in Babylon at the time. And here's how they did it. When it says he shakes the arrows... That just means that some arrows were marked with Jerusalem. Some would have been marked with Reba. They shake it up in a quiver and then draw one out. If it says Jerusalem, we'll go to Jerusalem. If it says Reba, we'll go to Reba. On top of that, they'll consult these teraphim, which are household idols. They're like small images used for personal worship and somehow legal matters. Uh, it's not known how exactly these images were consulted, probably by some kind of ritual or prayer that any mini miny mo came yeah, from this probably something like that yeah that'd be an interesting uh, research study to see there and you are not it yeah that's what he did they, then this, could they have been small enough to toss like dice or is it definitely possibly so I mean little figurines could be tossed yeah like lots like casting you know, lots somebody uh, in our class had mentioned 
You ever seen that game? Was it called? Is it called Pass the Pigs? Yeah. Or roll the pigs yeah. or whatever it is. The little pig figurines are dice, and however you roll them, they land on one leg or two legs or on their back, a uh-huh. certain amount of points. They thought that was the first thing they thought of when they read this. Hmm. Was like this is where Pass the Pigs came from. Well, if you don't know what that is, Google it, and you'll see what we're talking about. Uh, and then the final one is not quite as, I guess, sanitary as the other two, <laughs> or as normal. I mean, as yeah. weird as those other two things are, you know, the other two is like, okay, they're flipping a coin. This one, uh, this is an ancient practice where they would take the entrails of a sacrificial victim, human. A human? And in a lot of cases, or at least that's what I've seen. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this no, is... I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just, I just okay. I figured it was a bull or a goat or something. Okay, I have seen oh, human. Dear. So they kill somebody and they take their entrails and they examine them for markings to determine what they should do. This was very common in Babylon. It transferred over into Rome. And this is the only time this practice is referenced in the Old Testament. But they had... It's horrific. Like these soothsayers or whatever. And now you're making me think I need to go back and check this out. No, I, I know that animal. human sacrifice was not all that uncommon among the nations surrounding Israel. And Israel actually fell prey to it yeah. under certain administrations like Manasseh, for example. Mm-hmm. And th- this was the da- one p- part of their downfall. This is why God took them out and did this drastic move. And a lot of people say this is behind those very difficult commandments that we see to go and kill every last one of this particular nation or that particular nation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of people say that's justified because human sacrifice was going on in that country and it had crept into the culture so much that it was ruined. It was mm-hmm. just beyond repair. Um, that's a controversy for a different podcast, I think. Yeah. But I, so I, I'm not. I'm just shocked every time I hear about this. Nebuchadnezzar is somebody we read a lot about in Daniel who seems rational, you know, mm-hmm. at times. And uh, God, you know, used him and spoke directly to him. So it's hard. It's just hard to imagine anybody doing human sacrifice. And mm-hmm. you know, what's so tragic about it, What if it can be worse, it is worse in that little children are probably the ones being sacrificed. Yeah, and they were, in the case of those kind of practices that Israel adopted, uh, offering their kids to, what was it, Molech and Chemosh, were those yeah. the two? the fire gods of yeah. Canaan. Yeah, they built yeah. those basically like idols that were hollow on the inside. They're metal, and so you could build a fire inside of it, and they'd put their kids on the metal and basically burn oh, them wow. alive. Uh babies uh, it's bad stuff and actually in our next episode I think God calls them out on that specific thing that they have done mm-hmm. uh, it might be two episodes from now I'm not sure uh, but it's coming up really soon um, but it is possible that this was an animal liver yeah also. it's possible I mean if you want to I didn't even think of that which is why I thought maybe I should go back and study that a little bit more because I read sacrificial victim and immediately assumed human yeah but getting back to it, it was an examination of the liver for any abnormalities or for just aberrations. Or they markings. actually had some kind of educational system for these soothsayers where they would learn how to read the liver. Oh, wow. 
So they had livers on hand for these guys to examine. If you see this kind of mark, it means left. This so mark if you ever right. feel that you wasted your time in school, yeah. you probably didn't do this. At least you weren't a soothsayer in ancient Babylon. Could have been worse. Um, so those were the practices that he decided to do. Now, we mentioned this earlier as well. God says the people would consider this to be a false divination because they would not accept the fact that God would allow Nebuchadnezzar to come overthrow Jerusalem. Keep in mind that all the prophets right now, other than Ezekiel, Daniel, and Jeremiah, are prophesying peace, peace when there is no peace. And that's a phrase we recognize from Jeremiah. It's in Jeremiah 8.11, and it's also in Ezekiel 13.10. A lot of other places as well, but those are two examples. Uh, but here's why. Uh, verse 23, it will seem to them like a false divination. They have sworn solemn oaths, but he brings their guilt to remembrance that they may be taken. Now, there's a little bit of debate on what these oaths are, but they have taken two oaths at this point. Their first oath is obviously to God. Israel's made this covenant with God. They've made a promise to God. But on the other hand, Zedekiah has made a promise to Nebuchadnezzar to be subject to Babylon. And the people are guilty of breaking both of those covenants. So it doesn't really matter which oath we're talking about. Israel violated both of those arguments, and as a matter of, or not arguments, both of those covenants, agreements. Um, and in fact, they were one and the same, as we've already pointed out. God says it's his covenant. God is telling them to be under uh, Babylon, and they refuse to do it. So they break both covenants, and basically the, the punishment is coming upon them. Um, one more thing to point out from this one. Verse 27 says this, A ruin, a ruin, ruin, I will make it. This also shall not be until he comes, the one to whom judgment belongs, and I will give it to him. So this sparks a lot of um, intrigue, I think, just because of the way this is worded. Now, the NIV translates it like this. This also will be no more until he comes whose right it is, and I will give it to him. Most Old Testament scholars agree that this is an allusion to Genesis 49.10, which is considered mm -hmm. by almost everybody to be a messianic prophecy. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. Now, if you go read that, Genesis 49.10, you're probably going to see a footnote that gives the exact same language that you see here in Ezekiel 21.27, until he comes to whom it belongs. Or if you got the King James, it says Shiloh. Okay. Which is, I don't know, it's a, it's a difficult translation. Yeah. Because Shiloh has a, I think King James gives it Shiloh with a capital S as a name, you know, thinking this is the name of the Messiah. Yeah. But then um, the other translations parallel the idea of the scepter better. Right. Yeah, I think right. that's the idea that we're looking at. Basically, the nation is going to be Sovereign in ruin rule. until the ruler comes along who has a right to the kingdom. Mm -hmm. And that ruler that's going to come along is going to be Jesus. And obviously. to be clear, the kingdom is spiritual. 
not Correct. to be understood physically, but I'm sure all the people before Jesus took these things to be political. And it's easy to see why they took it that way. The more I study the Old Testament, especially these prophets and what the people go through politically, it's a lot easier to understand how the people messed this up and yeah. thought Jesus was going to be another great king because, you know, unless, you know, as Jesus comes along and tries to open their eyes to the real meaning, I'm not really sure, you know, we think we're really smart and these people were so dumb for not figuring it out. But if we were in their shoes, I'm not sure we would have thought any different yeah. about the coming of the Messiah. Yeah, uh, I think you're right on that. Um, I mean, when we get to another symbol in a moment, it, that prophecy we read just a minute ago, its it could be construed... I mean, he's talking about David, and what kind of a ruler was David? He was a king. He was an actual mm -hmm. Judean king. Um, and the kingdom was at the height of its power and wealth, right, yeah. with David. They were, fight, they were winning wars, expanding territory, mm -hmm. building palaces, building temples on earth. And so, you know, that was... And when Jesus came, those who believed him called him the son of David. Mm -hmm. In other words, one who rules as David ruled. Um, so... Yeah, I agree with you. We should, you know, when the disciples say right before the ascension, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel now? We should understand that in the context of this, these glimpses of the messianic kingdom yeah. that they were receiving in Ezekiel's day and at other times. Yeah, it would. Maybe we should cut those guys a little bit of slack yeah. for having a hard time figuring out what he really meant. So, okay. anything else to add to the discussion on that one? No, the I think we need post. to move forward. Alright, we'll scoot ahead to the delight of Ezekiel's eyes in chapter 24. So this is, you'll remember, Ezekiel's wife is going to die that night. God tells him that, and Ezekiel is required to abstain from all kinds of grief. And verse 18 is really kind of staggering to me. Here's what he says. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and that evening my wife died. And on the next morning, I did what I was commanded. That's all he has to say about his experience of his wife dying and him not being able to grieve. Okay. All right. Now, here. so here's what I was thinking as we were going through this. I have a couple of questions. Okay. All right? So, um, first of all, beautiful description of a spouse, the delight mm -hmm. of your eyes. Yep. I don't hear that much. <laughs> It's a term also yeah. that is used in, later in this chapter to refer to the temple in Jerusalem for the Jewish nation. Ah, okay. Now, she's going to be taken unexpectedly at a stroke, he says. Mm -hmm. He does say you shall not mourn or weep, nor shall your tears run down, but he does permit a sigh. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's verse 17. Sigh, but not aloud. So I don't think he's doing, um, what do they call that in 1984? Thought control? You know, I don't think okay. he's saying you can't be sad. Yeah. Sigh, but not aloud. And in that culture, and correct me if I'm wrong here, I'm just working on theory here. Okay. In that culture, mourning was like, you know, an event. Yes. It was something you could pay people to come in and do at your funeral. 
I'm thinking, you know, I was a Jairus's daughter who had died, and Jesus goes upstairs, and the mourners are there, mm-hmm. and they seem to be professional mourners, and Jesus sends them all out. Yeah. Um, and they laugh at him. You know, he says she's asleep, and they all laugh. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not really sad. They're just, you know, that's part of the funeral. It's just much part of the funeral as reading the obituary is in America yeah. today. So maybe he's saying, do not mourn in your cultural manner. Mourn privately. And then I don't get this. Okay, so all of these things are don't mourn, don't mourn, don't mourn. You you can sigh. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing he says, I believe, is nor eat the bread of men. Yeah. Is he telling him to fast? He says, don't eat the bread of men. That's a really good uh I understand it all the way down, you know. And I've got this note on eating the bread of men. Uh, I'm waiting on it to come up here. So the bread of men, typical of our funerals today, where you know we usually have a meal afterwards, and a meal is a part of the, really it's almost a part of the mourning process. Uh, it was definitely attached to these displays of mourning in the Old Testament. So everything you see there has to do with something that you do when you are grieving. You obviously weep. Um, you don't wear your turban. You don't put your shoes on your feet. You're going to cover your mouth, and you're going to eat the bread of men. Uh, there's a little bit of argument to the fact of that eating the bread of men is talking about like a almost kind of like a fellowship meal for encouragement kind of a, for the per, for yeah. the person that loses somebody. I thought that was kind of our thing in our culture. In their culture, I thought fasting was something that people did when they lost their wives or whatever. And I know that a lot of us do that, you know, today just involuntarily. We'd like to eat, but we're so anxious, we're so sad, we're grieving so much, we can't eat. Mm-hmm. And we've known people that have lost a lot of weight, you know, at the death of somebody special to them. But, you know, it would make sense if you're right, if they had a, you know, if he's saying don't touch that pecan pie or whatever, you know, that somebody yeah. brings over to your house, the comfort food. Um, but okay, it just, and I think you might have just... My preconceived notions, I I always thought fasting was in order with the mourning and the crying, but maybe at this particular historical point, uh, people ate. When they mourned, that's that's what I've read at least from, um, from the commentaries that I have seen. But then we have to take that. Maybe this will help us out. Uh, here's how Ezekiel explains what he does to the people. So the people on the next day say to him, "Will you not tell us what these things mean and why you're acting like this?" Which, by the way, I want to say on that verse that that's the key verse today. Yeah. You know, Will you not tell us what these we'll, things mean? It's it's Ezekiel. The key verse of the book of Ezekiel may be twenty four nineteen. Will no. you not tell us what these things mean and why you're acting this way? Yeah, you know, at least for this episode and episode before, that's the key verse. Yeah, and you've got to imagine that these people are starting to get maybe not frustrated, but like, okay, what is it now? Well, they they're dull of hearing. They haven't been listening. Yeah. You know, he's been talking. Nobody's listening. It's like the political atmosphere we're in um, mm-hmm. this year. You know, people are just yelling at each other, and they've already made mm-hmm. up their minds. They're not listening. So Ezekiel had to do some weird stuff 
so that they would just stop and say, okay, I, I got to know. Yeah. What are you saying? Yeah. I think that is a very important verse, all joking aside. You yeah. Know, the exasperation of the people, it explains a lot, I think. I'm sorry I interrupted, but go ahead. No, no, no. Uh, here's, what he, here's how he explains that. Say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will profane my sanctuary, the pride of your power, the delight of your eyes, and the yearning of your soul, and your sons and your daughters whom you left behind will fall by the sword. So already we see that God is saying, okay, so just like Ezekiel's wife, the delight of his eyes has died, the yearning of his soul has died, I'm going to take away that same thing for the nation of Israel, which is Jerusalem, specifically the temple. So I'm going to take it away. Verse 22, You shall do as I have done. You will not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men. So there it is again. Your turbans will be on your head and your shoes on your feet. You shall not mourn or weep, but you will rot away in your iniquities and groan to one another. Thus shall Ezekiel be to you a sign according to all that he has, d- all that he has done. You shall do. When this comes, you will know that I am the Lord God. So whatever that idea of not eating bread, there's another connection that could be made uh, maybe to famine or the fact that these people aren't going to have much to eat. The idea is uh, there's also the idea behind this of maybe it being so bad that the grief is inexpressible. Verse 23 says they're going to rot away and groan. Mm -hmm. So it's something that's so bad that maybe they don't even feel like doing these public displays of grief. Kind of like you know, I've known several people, if they've had someone close to them die, they don't want to go to the funeral. Not because they don't want to honor the person that's died. And that's usually the only reason they wind up going. But it's just because they, the grief they feel is too much and they just don't want to, they don't want to be involved in any of that. Yeah. Um, so it might have something to do with that. But what we can learn from this is we can learn the just how much Jerusalem meant to the nation of Israel, it's compared to, uh, you know, Ezekiel's wife here. Mm-hmm. It's called the yearning of their soul, the pride of their power, the delight of their eyes. Mm-hmm. So it's what they're invested in the most. It's where their identity lies. God's going to take it away, and they're going to basically rot away and groan in their grief, just like Ezekiel's doing for the grief of his wife. Now, there's this last thing here that we got to cover. Um, he says, when this happens, verse 25, verse 26, on that day, a fugitive will come to you and report the news. And on that day, your mouth will be open to the fugitive and you shall speak and no longer be mute. So you will be assigned to them so that they'll know that I'm the Lord. So we'll, we'll go to Ezekiel 33 and we'll pick up there in just a second. But from this point on, Ezekiel is going to be quiet about prophecy against Israel. He's going to prophesy a little bit more, but on a timeline, historically, everything else Ezekiel says from now till the destruction of Jerusalem is going to be about other nations. He is done talking to Israel about Israel at this point. He's not going to speak to them anymore. His mouth is going to be shut. Verse 27 says you'll no longer be mute on the day when the city actually gets destroyed. Three years later, after three years... Ezekiel's mouth is going to be opened. Verse 21, In the twelfth year of our exile, on the tenth month, on the fifth day, 
a fugitive came down from Jerusalem and said, The city has been struck down. Now the hand of the Lord had been upon me the evening before the fugitive came, and he had opened my mouth by the time the man came to me in the morning, so my mouth was open, and I was no longer mute. And he opens his mouth, and right after that, he talks to Israel. So he's made mute between for these three years from chapter 24 over here to chapter 33, but he's not made mute in the sense where he can't speak, period. He just can't speak against Israel. He's not going to warn Israel anymore. So his job as the watchman of Israel before the fall of Jerusalem is complete here at the end of chapter 24. Mm-hmm. He's done everything he's going to do for Israel until Jerusalem is struck down. Then he's right back at it. Mm-hmm. So he's not done talking to Jerusalem. He's just done talking to them in this way before Jerusalem is destroyed. All right. We're way over time. You want to hit the fourth sign? Yeah, we'll hit this fourth one really quick. So this is the stick, and obviously this is uh, the two nations being made together as one. And the big thing to think about here is the fact that he says, my servant David will be king over them, and they will have one shepherd. Where he says, my servant David will be their prince forever. Then he says, my dwelling place will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. So a lot of illusions as to what's going to happen when we get to the New Testament. Christ is going to come as this servant David uh, that's prophesied here, the prince that will rule over them forever, over their children and their children's children. Um, and then in verse 27, this I'm interested to see what you think about this. It says, My dwelling place will be with them. Do you think that compares at all to 1 Corinthians 3.16 where he talks about you know, God now dwells within the people, uh, definitely and not in the city anymore. Yeah, and it's it's also very similar to the prophecy of Jeremiah made around the same time of the new covenant in Jeremiah thirty-one, where um, you know I will be their God and they will be my people. The dwelling place, um, you know, the dwelling place language is used all the way up to the end of the book of Revelation. Revelation twenty-one, um, you know, is where all of this is fully completed and uh, God dwells among his people mm-hmm. not through the symbology of a tabernacle or a temple or the most holy place or the bread of presence or the ark of the covenant but actually dwells with them mm-hmm. and is their light and you know night shall be no more and the people will dwell with him for an eternity in heaven and yeah. so I think this and this speaks of the Christian age where God dwells in his people and then the Christian hope of when all things are completed at judgment and God actually dwells with his people in the end. Okay, so we're going to apply some of the things that we have learned. There's so much stuff. We're just going to pick out two things. The first one comes from this second symbol that we saw, the signpost, where the people thought they would be safe because they had sworn an oath to God. 
and they thought that oath that they had sworn would keep them safe. The problem was they didn't realize that they had breached that covenant, and now the covenant was void. And I think a lot of times we kind of fall into that same trap of thinking, you know, I told God a long time ago I would follow him, so everything's going to be all right. You know, and we don't recognize the fact that God's a lot more concerned with how we are treating that covenant today than how we treated it yesterday. And there's a parable in Matthew 21 of two sons. The father tells both of them to go work in the field. The first one says, yeah, I'll go, but he does not go. The second one says, no, I'm not going to go, but he goes later. And the one obviously who's more pleasing to the father is the one who initially said no. The point of that parable, or at least part of the point of that parable, is that God's a lot more concerned about our response to him today than he is concerned about our response to him yesterday. Mm -hmm. So yesterday we might have said, God, I'll follow you and I will be devoted. But what are we doing today? If we're not devoted today, we cannot expect to be pleasing to the Father. I think the most abused oath, if you want to call it an oath, is the oath of love. To express or to declare that you love someone or that you love God that's done so flippantly, I guess it always has been done so flippantly, to say, I love God, I love Christ, I don't worship Him, I don't serve Him, but I love Him. Mm-hmm. And uh, John, you know, really speaks to that of 1 John three eighteen, where he says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. I think love is an oath, you know, to, to say I love you, that is an oath, but, you know, as John points out, he's not looking. God isn't looking for you to speak that, but to show it, to declare it, just just like he did. God, mm-hmm. God is someone of action. His His word, you know, oaths are confusing because you go, you, you know, that language in the Sermon on the Mount seems to prohibit all oaths. Yeah. And then when you're in court, you can put your hand on the Bible and say, "So help me God." People, you know, sometimes ask, "Is that a sin?" Mm-hmm. I think we're missing the whole point. The whole point is God's word is so true that for him to say something is the same as it happening. Yeah. Like as he said, let there be light, there was light. So his word and his action were completely seamlessly woven together. Mm-hmm. Ours is so different. We'll say, yeah, I'll get around to it. Well, you said, you know, last week that you'd yeah. do it. Yeah, I'm going to get it done. I promise. I promise. I'll get it done. I would done. never do that. Yeah. But, <laughs> With if anything. you that's that's right we know that mm-hmm. uh so you know i think i think that's the whole thing behind oaths if we were more truthful we could take an oath i mean god in hebrews 6 the writer talks about how god took an oath on himself so the yeah it's not inherently evil to take an oath the problem is to take an oath and not act on it yeah and in this case the oath of the people didn't mean anything at all no it's just Hollow. Yep. Uh, the second application we want to make comes from uh, the delight of Ezekiel's eyes. And this really struck me uh, when I read it for the first time, and it stayed with me. So Ezekiel finds out the news that his wife is going to die later that same day at night and that he's not going to be able to mourn for her. And the only bit of of description we have about that whole scene is in verse 18. I spoke to the people in the morning, and at evening my wife died. 
And the next morning, I did what I was commanded. That's it. That's all Ezekiel has to say about, you know, the whole thing that happened. And I just wonder, you know, what went through Ezekiel's mind. I imagine if he, you know, was just thinking, maybe I should just give this up. Maybe I should get my wife out of the city. Maybe we should just go run and try to get away from God so he doesn't kill her. You know, I, I just don't know. And I, for good reason, obviously. No, we don't know that God killed is, her. Oh, yeah, right. Right, I'm talking God about... God knew she was going to die, and he did use that. Yeah, right. I'm talking about... I guess I'm thinking of my own reaction, maybe. Because if right. I hear well, that... if he said it, you know... I would be tempted to think, man, God's going to... I've done yeah. all these things, and now God's going to take my wife away from me to, to warn the people. Because, I mean, if he was able to know that she was going to die, he was also able to stop it from happening, and he didn't. No. That is practically killing her I guess is the way Ezekiel would think yeah so he has this knowledge all day like I'm wondering what did he do that day you know what what do you I have no idea what the rest of that day would have been like I would have liked I mean I would like to just see something I guess Uh, but there's a great reason that it's not there I'm not saying that God didn't know how to write the Bible. I'm just saying. See, yeah, this is where know, that, this is where we get into that Apostle John versus Saint John versus John. Yeah, and the guy that was talking about that. We we really get into the details that we're not supposed to worry about. Yeah, but um, the application, I guess, out of this is even with something so terrible that we speculate about. Well, what was he thinking? What? How hard was that to do? How did he spend his last few hours with his wife? He still just so plainly states, it happened, and the next morning I did what I was commanded to do. Mm-hmm. You know, he did it. Maybe none of those other details matter. The fact of the matter is, Ezekiel was given this ridiculously difficult task to do for God, and he did it. Mm-hmm. He did it. So, you know, I think we can. what we can take away from that is, maybe we have some difficult tasks that we have to do in order to follow God's will, in order to follow God's word, but the bottom line needs to be for us that we have that same kind of willing spirit that Ezekiel had and to just do it. Yeah. And it's amazing the things people won't do that, you know, are pretty simple. Mm-hmm. All of them are simple by comparison. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, we don't you like think about what Christ did, being mm-hmm. God, to go through the torture he went through and learned obedience in the things which he suffered, Hebrews 5. So, yeah, yeah it's a, while it's not about obedience, it's a great illustration of a prophet's obedience. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, don't, we need to see that the, the lesson here is that God has taken away the delight of their eyes. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, this is, that's, if you know Ezekiel at all, this is probably the thing you think of first when you hear about Ezekiel. I don't think you think of the spinning wheels and all of that from chapter 1 or the watchman. I think most people think that's the prophet whose wife died and he wasn't allowed to officially grieve her death. Yeah. But I do uh, I do hang on to that one command in verse 17, sigh. You know, okay, he could feel something. He just had to internalize it. Yeah. And and the obedience was in the externals to preserve the sign. And, and he wouldn't have had to do that 
but for the problem of the people being so dull of hearing. I mean, they were just apathetic. They weren't looking at the prophet anymore. And this extreme finally caused them to turn their heads and say, Will you not tell us what these things mean? Why are you acting this way? Mm-hmm. You know? Well, I want to thank everybody for tuning in and listening. Uh, some of you, half of you are probably thinking, Well, I'm really enjoying getting into Ezekiel. Never gotten into Ezekiel before. And others are probably wondering how much longer we're going to be in Ezekiel. Uh, I guess we can make the promise that we'll do something more practical next time. But... We're, you know, we're we still have a lot more to to look through in the book of Ezekiel. So I uh, hope that you'll stay with us. And in the meantime, between episodes, if you need something to do, how about going over to iTunes and giving us a good review or bad review? <laughs> Don't lie. Um, or you know, send us some feedback. Uh, check out our website at the66.net. 66 is a number. And uh, we'll work hard to get the next episode out to you. We're uh, looking forward to continuing our studies of Ezekiel next time.